morning and welcome to Rising. We've got another fantastic show for you all today. Brianna sadly is out sick, but this morning I am joined instead by Kim Iverson, bright and early. Good to see you, Kim. Thank you for waking yep. up at uh, the first light of dawn for us today. <laughs> it's not light outside yet now where I'm at oh on the goodness. West Coast. But, but yeah, I'm here all morning and we're going to be joined by some other great people. We've got Amisha Cross and Jeff Charles. They're in for our rising panel. We're going to be discussing some of the prominent Democrats who are not named Joe Biden who are rumored to have begun putting out their feelers for a 2024 White House run. Also, we're going to be joining by, uh, joined by Libby Emmons from the Post Millennial, and we're going to be getting her reaction on the NCAA's nomination of Penn swimmer Leah Thomas as Woman of the Year. But first, President Biden's fist bump diplomacy in Saudi Arabia took another hit yesterday after oil surged to over $100 a barrel. One market analyst told The Guardian, quote, Traders got one clear message from Biden's recent visit to Saudi Arabia. It is OPEC plus that makes the oil supply decision and the cartel isn't remotely interested in what Biden is trying to achieve. And nonetheless, the White House continues to celebrate this month's dip in gas prices with communications director Kate Bedingfield touting the 50 cent drop as one of the fastest declines in prices at the pump in over a decade. But when challenged on whether the 50 cent drop is enough for struggling Americans, here's what Press Secretary Corrine Jean-Pierre had to say to Fox News' Peter Ducey. But again, we have seen gas prices go down in, in the past 34 straight days. Aren't they still dollars a gallon higher than when you guys took office though? For, first of all, we have to look at the impact of how we got there, right? We, you think about the, the war that Russia has taken on in Ukraine, an unmitigated uh, war and a war that is brutal uh, and that has had an effect on the price gas is going up almost two dollars we have talked about that endlessly and also we are also in a once in a generation pandemic so there are outside factors that has led to gas prices going up to uh, food food prices going up to inflation uh, going up so that is really important what we have seen in the last 34 days is that gas prices have gone down uh, by 50 on average by 50 cents per gallon that matters that matters to teachers that matters to firefighters that matters to nurses that matters to everyday people and the president is going to continue to do the work. I mean, yeah, she's right that there are forces, you know, outside the Biden administration's control influencing gas prices, although I don't know that the Ukraine-Russia war counts as a factor outside Biden's control, right? Because it's part of our, our foreign policy is part of the uh, is an aspect of the of the conflict that is perhaps making it go on more than it should. Uh, if we're, you know, we're continuing, we're committed to arming Ukraine to to funding their defense and uh, you know no strings attached as long as it takes Biden has said in the past so I don't really I don't think they get to say oh yeah Russia war so you know gas prices what can we do about it that's like that's a well, policy choice to some extent yeah. ours certainly Russia's to, to a greater extent but also ours and I'm not really clear how much effect the ban that we have on Russia's oil coming into the country really has on the price of oil. I think one thing, you know, it's just easy to say to people, hey, it's it's Putin's fault. And, right. and that's the real issue. But actually, 
the the real problem is that we have refineries in the United States that have shut down. They shut down during the pandemic, and those and a lot of them never came back online. So they either shut down because um, there weren't enough workers, there was no real demand, and so they just let these refineries go. And they thought, well, now's a good time, I guess, to let them go. Um, or they shut down even because some of them for natural disasters. But we have less refining. I mean, the 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 crude oil coming into the country or, or that's you know needs to be refined. And then it's got to be marketed and distributed and then and then retailers set their own prices. So a lot of this, you know, there's a lot of dynamics that go into the price of gas. One big one is just corporate greed. There's just no way around it. Corporations are finding that this is a good time to start. Uh, you know, they see the, de- the supply and demand issue and suddenly people came back from a pandemic. They needed gasoline to go places. They wanted to start traveling again. And they're like, oh, well. Uh, we don't have the refineries as much anymore, so now we don't have as much supply. So, you know, we can yeah. start jacking up some of the prices. So the big question, and this is a question I have for you as a libertarian, Robbie, is so the issue is a lot of these refineries are owned by private companies and they're no longer in operation. And we really need those refineries to come back in, um, to come back online. Who does it? So is because the corporations have no interest in it and they have no interest in it for a couple of reasons. One. Why, when they could just charge more and make the same amount of money, in fact, record profits? Two, why would they when so many are trying to move away from oil and gas and into, a di- you know, d- different forms of energy? So who, yeah. I, I mean, in my view, it should be the government that does take over some of these industries and says, you know, rather than allowing the corporations to price gouge Americans when the opportunity strikes, the government should be in charge of something such as vital to our our national security as oil. They should be having some stake in that. We should nationalize it a bit. That's my argument. I mean, my counter argument, my counter argument would be the government is just so bad at everything it does. Yes, sometimes corporations do things we don't like or cost too much or whatever, but it could cost 18 times more if the government was in charge of it. If the government was in charge of a desert, you'd be out of sand in a day. They just they mismanage everything horribly. Our, our infrastructure is crumbling. Uh, a lot of it is an issue of it's too expensive and too costly because of regulations to do anything. So I'd, you know, I'd want to look at why those refineries closed. Is it too costly to bring them back online because there's environmental impact reports you have to do and and labor costs where there's you know minimum labor requirements regulatory requirements it's easier and cheaper to do everything outside this country because our government has made it impossible to work here so i would i would want to look at those things there might be factors we could get rid of we could just say okay well we can wave away you know you don't have to do 18 inspections to bring this plant online you know 16 inspections will be fine and then the, the company might go oh okay then this actually would be profitable, we'll do that instead. That would be my answer. I bet there's a lot of red tape forced on them by the government. Because I don't really want to, you know, when you start having them, the government take over industries, then you get in this very, even if it is desirable, you get into, well, then this member of Congress is very invested in, in this company and this one's paid by that. You, you get more, a lot more corruption, the kind of corruption we're very worked up about, uh, understandably, when, you know, uh, the people trying to regulate, for instance, tech, right, have, have stock in Apple and Facebook and other things. And it just gets, it, it gets very messy and corrupt. Um, I don't want to subsidize I mean, these companies either, but I but I, I think probably if we got rid of some of the punitive regulations on them, it would make a difference. 
Well, no one regulated that they sh- that they closed down the refineries and that they, you know, I mean, we definitely are having a supply chain demand issue. Mm-hmm. So I understand the price of gasoline going up just because we haven't figured out the, uh, you know, how to get trucks back on the road and, and distributing and drivers. And, you know, we're having a worker, a worker shortage and a supply chain shortage for whatever reason. But but the rest of it, you know, no one forced them to shut down the, the refineries. I mean, they did. But well, I take that back. They did shut down the refineries a lot, largely, and and much of the supply chain crushed, you know, was crumbled and dwindled away during the pandemic right. when we had all of those closures. I mean, the government makes it po- so, impossible to drill in in a lot of places where it'd be easier to drill. We but end the up drilling is not the issue; it's the refining. So we can drill all day, but it, we have right, to be able but to I'm, What I'm saying oil. is, I'm sure there are things the government has done to make that difficult as well, given how they yeah. have treated the industry well, in general. I mean, of course, there's always regulations and whatnot, but still the, the the closing down of these refineries and the supply chain demand issues that we're having from lack of workers mm-hmm. and, and that a lot of that stuff is actually causing the price. Of, because you have to ask, you know, why is it that the price of gas at the pump is going down over the last 34 straight days, yet the price of the oil barrel, crude oil, has gone up? Well, Americans have to start connecting the dot there. So it's not when the price of barrel goes, when the crude oil goes up, the gas prices go up. They're not directly tied together. The rest of it is the corporations setting the prices. They're the ones that are deciding on the refinery and the distribution and the marketing costs. And then the actual retailers have to set their prices based on what they're buying at wholesale. So it's complicated. But why would our government take over the refineries and then get us more gas? Isn't our government's goal to move us away from gas. I wouldn't trust well, so the government then, right, to do that anyway, right? They're gonna they're right. gonna take over the refinery and shut it down all over again because they don't well, want you driving a car. And, <laughs> and that's a good point. The Biden administration has a real yeah. problem there, right? Because yeah. on, on one end, and even with the refineries closing down on one end, uh, now in the situation that we're in, many of us would say, why didn't you keep those refineries going? Did you need to help them out? Because it was the government's fault for closing down, closing down the economies. People were staying home. So mm-hmm. that was a, those were government regulations right. largely. So then you would say you would need to at least subsidize our basic necessities. And that includes oil, whether people like it or not. But on the flip side, so but then you know what would have happened. I mean, people would have screamed about that. That you, you would have had AOC, the first one out there, saying, yeah. "Oh, now he's you know rather than giving money to the people, he's giving money to the oil refineries, yeah. um, to you know oil companies to keep, to keep them going." And then now, when it's time to potentially, you know, we need to ramp back up and and get our supply back, especially if the Saudis are going to say. Hey, you know what? We're not helping you out. You're on your own. Well, then it is important for us to have our own refineries so that we can be energy independent. But, you know, we uh, what kind of optics for a Biden administration would that be that he's that the government's going to start pumping out more oil, well, and, refining and the, more oil? The air travel issue is such a good example of how this can go wrong, right? Because the government gave the airline industry a big bailout during the pandemic because they said, okay, look, we don't, you know, we don't want, we don't want uh, all these employees to get fired, um, but, you know, air, air travel is going to be offline for a good long, long while because, you know, we're really shutting things down and the pandemic is going to go on forever. That was like the message from the government. Uh, what happened is the airlines got rid of too many pilots anyway, despite taking all this money. And then they're, you know, the, the, uh, the, 
desire among passengers to to travel came back much faster than the airlines planned for and a lot faster than the government thought it was going to even be capable of allowing people to do so. So now the industry is like more screwed up than it has ever been in our lifetime since 9-11, despite the government's very concerted effort to keep these employees like it, it just totally failed. And uh, I, I worry something similar would happen. It's just such a great example. Like, the, our government is so incompetent. It's, I don't know that that's just a Biden administration thing. I think it's probably not just a Biden administration thing. Certainly the Biden administration doesn't seem more competent than the average. So, Well, let's, uh, let's look at what Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has to say about this. He very well might be the next president, so you might be railing on him and after 2024 and his incompetence. But he jumped into the oil and gas fray after Biden's trip to Saudi Arabia, criticizing the president for ignoring domestic solutions to the energy energy crisis. Let's take a look at that. How come it's wrong to produce our own oil and gas here, but you can go to Saudi Arabia and fist bump to try to get it from Saudi? I mean, it makes no sense that we wouldn't do it. We have opportunities here to be inner energy independent and not have to worry about any of these other countries, and yet they're intentionally not doing it. And you can't run a modern economy on windmills. You just can't do it. So we do a lot of solar in Florida. It is a complement. It does not displace the traditional forms of energy. And so now we're in a situation they're bragging that gas has gone down over the last however many weeks it's still over four bucks like i had never seen it over four bucks in my whole life living here so i mean it's really but that is the problem it's just when you're when you're uh cranking the printing presses, you're making energy more expensive, you know, that creates an upward pressure on all of this stuff. Well, listen, Republican, I mean, what do you want to do? You want the government to take over the, the, the process? I mean, that's, look, we could complain all day. Ron, Ron DeSantis and other Republicans can repla- complain all day about the Biden administration not doing enough. But that sounds a lot to me like they're advocating for government to intervene, maybe even take over and put some of these refineries back online with government workers. I'm not opposed to that at all. I just think that, look, both sides of this situation are to blame. The Biden administration needs to take some blame for shutting down the economy that caused a lot of these corporations to then say, we don't have a business then, we're shutting down. And then Republicans on the flip side need to understand that, look, if you want the government to intervene, then you're going to have to get on board with a little bit of this, you know, government intervention and nationalization of the oil industry. Yeah, I just I don't think the government can be trusted to uh, to nationalize these industries and then make them better. They're going to shut them down. Like our government wants us to not work. They want you to stay in your home until the covid pandemic is over. I can't I can't imagine feeling confident and safe enough to give them uh, more control over our economy. But yes, the, the current situation is. Very frustrating, and uh, I think we'll be hearing from Ron DeSantis on a lot of these issues in the next uh, next uh, few months and years. Obviously, I do expect he's going to be uh, the Republican nominee, but we'll we'll find out what uh, Donald Trump never has know, to say about right? that. You never, never know. know what's going to happen, but we'll be talking about some of that later on in the show. But next, we've got your radar, Robbie. Looking forward to that. All right, Robbie, you say I'm going to like this one. So what's on your radar? You are going to like it. So if you follow me on social media, you'd know that I spent the weekend in Las Vegas, not on vacation. I was attending Freedom Fest. Got a little bit of vacation time in as well. But Freedom Fest is an annual political convention for libertarians like myself and also some conservatives. I've spoken there many times. I've actually lost count of how many times. I think it's been at least five. Reason Magazine, which is the organization I work for when I'm not doing stuff with The Hill, They have a booth there at Freedom Fest every year, and a number of my colleagues uh, speak as well. So it's a big event drawing between 2,000 and 3,000 attendees, according to organizers. 
The big-name speakers tend to be well-known figures who overlap with the libertarian and conservative movements, including Kentucky Senator Rand Paul and Fox Business Channel host Lisa Kennedy. This year, one of the big-name speakers was actually Andrew Yang, businessman-turned-Democratic candidate for U.S. president and candidate for mayor of New York City. Yang has launched his own political party, the Forward Party, which he describes as neither right nor left, but an attempt to move America forward with a political message that speaks to Americans of all stripes, including libertarians like myself who currently feel neglected by the two-party duopoly. Kim has spoken positively about the Forward Party in the past, and we've actually interviewed Yang about it on our show. So I was pleased to finally meet Yang in person. Here we are with Joe Jorgensen, who's the Libertarian Party's 2020 presidential candidate. But of course, the gatekeepers of legitimate viewpoints within the mainstream and progressive democratic media and activism apparatus despise this project because it's outside their purview and control. Enter the Southern Poverty Law Center. The SPLC bills itself as an organization that tracks hate groups and hate crimes in the U.S. In a recent article posted to its website, the SPLC made this claim. Former Democratic presidential candidate Andrew Yang will speak this Saturday about his new forward party and creating political coalitions at the 2022 Freedom Fest in Las Vegas, which will feature far-right libertarians with ties to white nationalists and anti-Semites. The article is no cheerier than the headline, stresses all of the problematic people who have spoken at Freedom Fest or ever been tangentially connected to someone who spoke at Freedom Fest. So to be clear, I don't agree with everyone who appears at the conference. It's not even close. Some are more conservative than I am. Some are more uh, Christian conservative figures. Some are libertarians who are more radical than I am. And then there are a lot of speakers that I do agree with. My colleagues at Reason, former libertarian House Representative Justin Amash, education reformer Corey DeAngelis, individuals affiliated with great organizations like the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression, Young Voices, the Foundation for Economic Education, the Pacific Legal Foundation, many others. I mean, take a look at this partial speaker's roster and tell me this is predominantly some fringe far-right event. Uh, in case you don't recognize him, that's Glenn Greenwald in there. He was there. Also pictured comedian and actor John Cleese. <laughs> But the SPLC focused on a handful of speakers who are not even really problematic themselves, but had previously spoken alongside individuals with bad and obnoxious views. So here's an example. The SPLC goes after Clint Russell, who hosts a podcast about the COVID lockdowns, and attacks Russell along the following lines. So this is from the article. Russell has appeared alongside Ryan Dawson, a Holocaust denier and self-described journalist who combines criticism of Israel's occupation of East Jerusalem, the Gaza Strip, and the West Bank with anti-Semitic tropes. So that's it. But Dawson, the alleged Holocaust denier, he wasn't the one speaking at Freedom Fest. Russell was. His crime was appearing alongside him. So we're getting well into guilt by association territory. It's easy for people who frequently appear at speaking events and political conferences to play six degrees of separation from some much more extreme figure. The first year I attended Freedom Fest, yeah, Donald Trump spoke there. You know who else spoke there? New York Times columnist Paul Krugman, who is among the most influential progressive writers in the world. Krugman debated a conservative economist, Stephen Moore. I don't agree very much with Krugman, but I thought he did a pretty good job and was actually very persuasive on the issue they were debating, which was health care. Should he not have participated in that because someone else at the conference appeared alongside someone else who knows someone else, who was on a podcast with someone else, who's certifiably crazy? Please. 
And I'd like to further note that Freedom Fest did actually take action to proactively disinclude two hateful speakers who were mistakenly invited without the organizer's approval. One of these was Nick Fuentes, a far-right activist and speaker who is, in my view, credibly described as a white nationalist. After the organizers realized that he had been included on a panel by a filmmaker who wanted to screen a documentary about controversial figures, so the organizers swiftly ejected Fuentes, rightly so. Uh, not a libertarian. We don't want to associate with, with him. My friend Brad Palumbo, a libertarian writer who also spoke at Freedom Fest, notes that his friend Isaac Saul went to the conference explicitly to debate with right-wing people. Palumbo writes this, The SPLC's twisted logic would associate him with the views of his debate opponent for daring to be in the same location as him. We won't solve any of our nation's problems by locking ourselves in echo chambers and refusing to even engage with any group that contains a single distasteful member or a single member who is in the past elsewhere associated with someone distasteful. Contrary to the SPLC's suggestions, that kind of siloing is a recipe for more extremism and more polarization, not less. And I agree with all of that. Now, the SPLC has, you know, a long history, Kim, obviously, of, um, I, I think, of exaggerating in some cases um, cer certain groups' uh, ties to, to hate groups, or even describing what are hate groups. So there's a map they had on their website a while back showing you, state by state, how many hate groups are in each state. Well, if you click on the state and look, what you find out is that, so let's say there's 14 hate groups. Well, half of them, first of all, are like black nationalist groups like the Nation of Islam. And to even call them groups is not really, like it, it might be one or two people who have a club. And then if they have a fight and split into two, like they break their club into two, all of a sudden there will be, oh, hate groups have increased in this, in this state. Well, it's not really, <laughs> right. it's not really the, 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 like the threat of, of you know, reactionary hate has increased because like two people who sell World War II memorabilia or something had a fight and now sell it individually. Like there's no, it's making a mountain out of a molehill, which is kind of the organization's entire, entire MO. Well, and really the SP, uh, SPLC looks like a hate group to me in and of itself. I mean, look, if you're going to be an organization that lists a bunch of groups that you hate, how are you <laughs> then not a hate group? I mean, that's, and that's what they do. They go around and they yeah. label, okay, you're a hate group and you're a hate group. And the definition of hate speech and hate group has completely lost its meaning because all it means is somebody that you think has abhorrent views. You don't like their views for whatever the reason might be. And so therefore you classify them as a hate group. And then when you ask, well, what qualifies them as a hate group? What exactly, for example, did An Andrew Yang do or say, or you know, right. what is his that that is that's now tell that that gives you the right to then go in and and blast out that he's associating with hate groups, and so therefore guilt by association. You know, what exactly is this definition of a hate group? And uh, I, I mean, a hate group to me is very specific. It's a group that organizes specifically because they want to eradicate or go after a certain other group of people, um, right? So if so, if you're a hate group that you're a group that forms and you say, okay, we just want, but even then, it's dicey. I mean, I, I think that if you have a viewpoint, like if you advocate, for example, for less immigration into the United States, I don't believe you're a hate group. You have a viewpoint right. that I'm that I'm, I'm I don't agree with, but it doesn't mean that it's hate for immigrants. You're just saying, you, you know, you believe that the border should. It depends on how you frame it, of course. Right. right? If you think if you don't want uh, more immigrants coming in because you think America should only be a country for white people and that even right, black that people be... within America should should 
be somewhere else and Asian people somewhere else, I would say, yeah, you're a hate group. Or I mean, right, still, hate is a, is a weird way. You're a, you're a racist group, right? If you think that right, only white people group. should be in one country and Asian people in another country sure. and Jews in another country or eradicated as often. These, these groups tend to have extremely anti-Jewish views. So yeah, right. I would agree in those cases, but it's not, but, and also we have to debate those people sometimes. We have to call out their bad views. We have to criticize them. Uh, so just, you know, just having, saying anyone who's ever had any interaction with them is tarred by association is just a very, is a very silly way of, of, of doing it. And they, I, I don't know, it speaks to the, a desire to paint people they just disagree with on the right as, as uniquely fringe or racist or dangerous or hateful when really there, many of those, you know, everyone who supports Donald Trump is probably some kind of, you know, racist, hateful person in their, in their view. I mean, not to, I don't want to mischaracterize their view. That's, a, I guess, an exaggeration of what they'd say. That's kind of the framing of how they put on it. There's a lot of, uh, in fact, they did a lot of work on how Trump had emboldened uh, or caused there to be more hate crimes or more hate incidents in schools. And I did a lot of, like, a thorough debunking of that, which d it did not actually, the data didn't bear that out, like, whatsoever. Um, but it's, it's, uh, it's uh, the, the hate... I group counting stuff is is some weird science right they're just losing their credibility honestly i mean organizations like the splc and and many of the the people on the left and progressives that are screaming constantly about you know racism bigotry sexism phobia you know everybody's all of these things and all of that has lost its meaning now and people are just rolling their eyes saying everybody gets labeled these things at some point at one mm -hmm. point in time by these groups and by these people. And so, you know, this is just, it's just all lost its meaning. And badge of honor to Andrew Yang, I would say, I mean, in full disclosure, I am actually on the leadership board of the forward party. So, and, and I'll tell you, I, the last meeting that I sat in on, there was a lot of people very far left, I would say further than I am on a lot of things. And they're in the leadership board. It's a whole mix of people for that, for that uh, political party that is meant to be bringing people from both sides together mm. and people that are just fed up and fed up with all of this crap. So, you know, this is kind of a badge of honor to Yang in a way that shows that he's actually making some noise, that yep. he's being viewed as a threat to the establishment. And uh, and so they want to go on a smear campaign and say, oh, look at him. And, you know, they did this, too. They called him a white during his campaign, his presidential campaign, calling him a white supremacist. Of course, he's Asian, right? but white supremacist. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. 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 So Although Asians don't count as, uh, I mean, you no, might we're, we're know we're all white Kim. now, apparently. I saw, yeah. saw, I can't remember what school it was. It was some college I saw just yesterday. I'll have to find it, that it was... It was doing a, a racial break, you know, because trying to do a look how diverse we are. We have such a diverse incoming class. And it has it has uh, it listed um, people of color minus Asians was the category. <laughs> name. <laughs> uh, anyway, it was great meeting uh, uh, Yang. You know, I don't I don't agree with everything he thinks or everything you think. But I, I, I do think it's important for people who are disaffected, dissatisfied with the two party duopoly to stay in touch, have conversations about building alternative coalitions. I agree with him on everything. There's a lot yeah. of things I don't, I mean, I think when it came to pandemics, I mean, I think there was things that we definitely diverged on. But the point is to say, we've got to break up the duopoly. We yes. have to get something in there and, and give us more choices. And that is the aim of the forward party. So people in that party, I could, like I said, in the leadership board, do not agree with each other. But we all agree that the current system, the way it is, is broken. And it is ruining our culture, our democracy, our nation, the fabric of who we are as Americans. And it's got to and it needs to be broken up somehow. And that is the goal. Absolutely.
So President Biden is reportedly preparing to declare a national climate emergency as soon as this week, according to The Washington Post. Last week, Biden's climate agenda collapsed on Capitol Hill after Senator Joe Manchin withdrew support for the legislation. Senate Democrats were in talks about a $300 billion tax credit for solar, wind, nuclear and carbon capture industries. Just yesterday, two Senate Democrats urged Biden to use the Defense Production Act to ramp up production of a wide range of renewable energy products. Hmm. While on the campaign trail, President Biden had pledged to slash U.S. emissions by 50 to 52 percent by the end of 2030. Right now, The Washington Post says Biden is seriously falling short on the goal, just like every hmm. other. Um, more national emergencies, not my, not my favorite thing, governing by constant national emergency. Um, I know you're a big uh, previous supporter of, uh, and, and it's not to say you're not now, but very active in the green movement and anti-climate change stuff. And I, I, we've talked about this on the show before, you know, how that uh, cause, I think, has become increasingly something sort of an elite progressive cause and something a little bit in tension with the interests of working class voters, particularly when they're the ones at, who are asked to sacrifice, you know, and the elites say very trivializing things like, well, you know, if you had a Tesla, you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't need to fill up your gas tank, <laughs> right. uh, which, right. you know, something they can't afford and, and wouldn't be able to procure even if they could. Uh, so it's just a kind of um, a very uh, the elite nature of the climate change activism uh, set of issues is, I think, pretty interesting. Yeah, it, you know, it, for him to be declaring a national emergency right now to climate. I mean, look, we do have a climate issue for sure. I mean, look at what's going yeah. on in the UK. They're having the hottest day on record ever in the entire history of, since they've been recording temperatures. Isn't it always so, the hottest day somewhere, someday, right? Isn't that just how and cold, you know, randomness right. seeing, works? I don't know. Well, we're, we're definitely seeing extremes More in the extremes. In temperatures. So that's what they're saying. So, okay, yeah. fine, maybe. And, you know, and, and look, to the critics' credit, they, they say, well, what started off as global warming, right, that used to be the term. Now it's shifted to climate change because some areas are getting colder, and so right. they can't really say global warming. And so... Yeah, there is a lot of accusation that this agenda, that the climate agenda is being weaponized as a tool to keep the poor people down, to keep people in their place um, and to control. And I, you know, and, and I will say I don't disagree with that. I do think that we have a, I think it's both. I think we do have uh, a need to pay attention to the climate and we need to be doing more as human beings to be in, you know, in a, in a better symbiotic relationship with the planet, for sure. But at the same time, I do also believe it's being weaponized as a way to keep mostly, I would say, poor countries down, not so much uh, poor people, uh, poor people, for sure, it absolutely affects them in mm -hmm. this country, but we're a wealthy nation overall. Um, even our poor people, surprisingly, are better off, even the ones living in tents on the streets, than some people in other countries that can't even eat, you know, they're starving to death, or they're, you know, they're, they've got real issues. And so what happens, if, not to say real issues, you know, I don't want to get if people come after me, oh, Cam, you said that crazy thing again. So <laughs> look, um, you know, when other countries, I do believe, though, that when we put these climate policies, like, look what's happening in Sri Lanka, right, where we've said to this poorer nation, in general, like you need to start following our climate agenda because we're in a state of emergency. It's the same thing with COVID pandemic. We were in a state of emergency. And so we as the as America have the luxury to close down and 
and shut down our economy. No one's really, we definitely had some ramifications to, for that in this country, but not as severely as the poorer countries felt it. Some countries were literally having starvation issues. Um, and so when we use these policies, you know, but we use these policies anyway, and we say, well, this is what's best. We're doing what's best. And it's a very first world mentality. And then we go and we implement these on foreign countries to tell them, well, you must. It, it keeps their economies from growing. It keeps them from being competitive in the global market. And they ultimately stay poor and, and beholden to, you know, their their bigger right. neighbors. And governments and so, love states of emergencies. They just Everything's got to be an emergency. Yeah. You know, nothing can be dealt with in a regular, regular legislative session. It's all got to be, you know, government by fiat and by, oh, no, crisis, emergency. Um, you know, which allows them to seize emergency powers, invest more power in the permanent bureaucratic class inside the government rather than the elected political class. And, and you know, that's how you have all sorts of new policies done now, right? The, the, the very, the far reach, it was struck down, but the mandate, the, the COVID ma uh, mandate policy for, you know, thousands and thousands and thousands of workers Congress didn't pass it. Congress didn't write that law. That that just was willed into policy because we're in an emergency by a federal agency. And then it was thankfully struck down by the Supreme Court. But that's what that's why I bristle it. You know, our, our political system is very broken. We don't have it's supposed to be you elect legislatures, legislators, then they come up with the policy. And then if you don't like the policy, you hold them accountable, you vote them out of office. If you do like the policy, then they get returned to office. But our legislators just don't do very much other than, I guess, appear on TV and yell at each other or hold hearings where they yell at other people. And in meanwhile, it's the executive and their agents who are unelected doing all the actual business of governing and those people aren't accountable or they're so much less accountable to the working class. Well, and the other thing about this that's interesting is, you know, uh, in the same breath, so you've got Biden saying, I'm going to declare the Biden administration, a, a declare a national climate emergency, um, while in the same breath saying, but we need to do something about oil, right? So how do they right. reconcile that when they say, well, we've got to get more oil? I mean, look, so if Democrats don't want to drill and refine oil here in America, when right. you go and you ask foreign countries to do it, you know, you're just offshoring your yeah, carbon that's a, footprint. That's a great point. It's such a seesaw presidency to be like, yeah, we're going to subsidize the renewables here, but wait, we need to go get more oil from the Saudis there. We're going to pull out of Afghanistan because we got, we should be more restrained, but we're going to send money to Ukraine to keep them going in this war. It's a very, like, we can't, during COVID, you know, you can't eat inside, so we're going to create bubbles outside because it's too cold so people can eat inside outside. Like, it just, just <laughs> makes no sense. Tribune no, magazine points sense. to a class war, though, by the way, at the heart of the climate debate. According to the outlet, the 1% is responsible for double the emissions of the entire bottom half of the planet. No surprise there whatsoever, citing the global elite's private jet charters to the G7 summit. And young activists are starting to point the finger at Hollywood's A-list for a similar issue. Kylie Jenner, the youngest of the Kardashian clan, was recently blasted for posting a picture of her jet, oh, it's a picture of her jet, with a caption that read, you want to take mine or yours, to which social media users <laughs> accused her of being a climate criminal. Wow. Oh, boy. Wow. You know, that is just an insensitive uh, tweet, even if it weren't about climate, just to be like, look at how rich I am. Like, mine or yours. I'm so wealthy while everybody's struggling. People can barely, you know, they're, they're living paycheck to paycheck, unable to buy the food that they need because of inflation, put gas in their car because of the inflation. And Kylie Jenner's like, look at my jet. Ah. Yeah. And I, I, I have I mean, no 
problem with people. I, I like people should be wealthy. That's fine. Go out and earn wealth. All the Kardashians, I mean, they, you know, they were born into uh, certainly some uh, uh, significant, uh, you know, leg up situation, I, I think, but yes, then have yes. gone on to, you know, make tons of money, be very successful in fashion and entertainment, et cetera. Good for them. I have no issue with that. I have no desire to like redistribute wealth just because other people have too much wealth. I don't care. But then to lecture other people about, you know, they're, oh, you're hurting the environment. Oh, we need you to sacrifice right. more. It's don't do that. Just don't do that if you're, I you're, mean, look, you're not going to do it yourself. Look, the Kardashian clan, they built their entire en enterprise on being on, with ha on having an audience. And it, it's kind of like know your audience. Yeah. I mean, look, the, the vast majority of people watching them are younger and tend to lean more liberal would be my guess. And so if you know this about your audience that you're making millions of dollars on, even billions of dollars in some cases, then maybe you should just kind of tune in a little bit more to what they're caring about. But that being aside, I do agree that we are not going after the wealthy people when it comes to the climate crisis. We are punishing poor nations. We are saying, oh, it's your farming that's causing the problem. You need to ban, you know, your, your farm animals. You got to get rid of your farm animals. I don't know. You'll have to start importing your food from somewhere else. You know, we, we, we implement these policies that are harming poor countries, poor people. We say to poor people, well, the price of gas is going up because what are we doing? We're inadvertently and stealthily kind of uh, trying to get you to move towards buying a Tesla, you poor person living paycheck to paycheck you. Try to get your hands on one of those. Right. So, you know, we, we've got these policies that punish the poor and yet nothing is really targeting the wealthy people. And again, I would go back to the very first ban that we should have if we're going to ban anything. If they're so hell-bent on banning things, then why not go after those private jets? That would be the first thing and say, hey, listen, you're just going to have to fly commercial like everyone else. You can fly first class. You want business class? You want to get yourself a little cabin that makes that lets you lay down and you get all kinds of snacks served to you? Fine. <laughs> but you, you can't fly on your private jet anymore. And, you know, so I have questions like, for, especially for lawmakers, are they are they is the really wealthy ones? I don't know. You probably know the answer to this. How does Nancy Pelosi fly around? How does Mitch McConnell fly? Like, how do these people fly around? I mean, they fly first back and class. Forth? I don't think. Do they... you think they fly private? I mean, Nancy certainly has enough money. I don't know. I, you know maybe, I don't know. I don't know either. I think they do. They may, maybe they do some of the time, or or they have donors who fly them around. I, they certainly fly. Uh, they certainly take normal flights some of the time. I think probably mostly they're just they're just flying, you know, first class. First class. I would hope. I saw actually. I saw okay, even um, then, that's... coming back from Vegas. Uh, I saw Cory Booker at the airport. So he was flying, flying on the same plane as I was. Um, so was he flying first class or did he fly in coach? I didn't see. Didn't see. But he was on a plane. Oh, he was not on a private plane. That's my point. They should be flying coach. They so. shouldn't be making enough money to be flying. You know, I did not. I, well, I remember walking through first class and I did not see him there. So, OK, so, so maybe he flew coach. But nonetheless, you know, we are yeah. seeing this disparity on who is getting hit with the climate policies. Who are they targeting? I would like to know a little bit more about Biden's agenda here. If he's saying, OK, we're going to be implement, you know, declaring a, a, an emergency with climate. What does that mean exactly? So what are you going to do? You're wanting to put more money into these industries for subsidies. Who gets those? Does the average American get? Solyndra. You know, I, I, yeah, I would like to know where that where that all goes. But even then, you know, it still benefits a certain class. So if it's still going to be, mm -hmm. oh, we're going to give you access to what solar panels or something. Well, you have to own a home, right? There's there's yeah. certain things that. Uh, but it'd be interesting to find out a little bit more about what he's trying to trying to accomplish. But again, right now, you know, it's tough when you've got an oil and gas problem and you've got 
then you're saying that you're going to declare a national. I, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know how he's going to do it. <laughs> it's it's going to be a mess, uh, just like everything else right now with the Biden administration. All right, we'll have Team Rising joining us up next. Stay tuned for that. So new CNN polling gives President Biden a measly 38 percent approval rating, his lowest yet in a CNN survey. You know, CNN, so it's likely a lot more left leaning. The president is fully underwater on voters top issues. Only 30 percent of respondents approve of his performance on the economy. 25 percent on inflation. I don't know who approves of that, but 39 percent on immigration and 46 percent on the war in Ukraine. And as Biden continues to hemorrhage support in the polls, other prominent Democrats have begun to take matters into their own hands. According to new reporting from CNBC, Vice President Kamala Harris and California Governor Gavin Newsom quietly meeting with Democratic donors and party officials in apparent anticipation of launching their own presidential campaigns in 2024. (laughs) Our rising panel joins us now to weigh in. Amisha Cross is a political commentator and Democratic strategist. And Jeff Charles is host of A Fresh Perspective and a contributor at Red State and Liberty Nation. Welcome to you both. Thanks for having me. So, Amisha, I'll start with you. Um, Nothing seems to be going right for the Biden administration uh, whatsoever. Is it truly getting so desperate that Democrats have to look um, outside Biden? You know, a possibility that I've really discounted a lot on the show because I can't imagine him stepping aside really for every reason because it's just so rare for people to give up power. But, um, you know, put me inside the mindset of the Democratic Party right now. Well, I think that the Democratic Party right now is is frustrated and, and rightfully so frustrated with what we're seeing with these polling numbers, the numbers that you shot off earlier, particularly the ones around inflation. As we know, economically, the economic situation in America right now has actually improved drastically since the start of the pandemic and actually since the start of this year. These numbers are amazing in terms of jobs that are available, in terms of where our economy happens to be going. But a lot of that takes a downside because of where the inflationary costs happen to be, because the cost of living has increased, because the cost of regular everyday things like groceries, like gas, are really hitting people hard. And I I think that this administration has to grapple with that. It's not just reporting on the good economic numbers in terms of job availability. It's also looking at the pocketbook issues that many Americans are facing every single day. With that being said, we also have to talk about reality. Uh, President Biden is going to be 81 come the next election cycle, come the presidential election. Um, You know, former President Trump isn't too far behind him. I think he's going to be 78 at that time. These would be two particularly old candidates. Um, Mm -hmm. We have not seen something like that in our nation's history. So I do think that for many Americans, the age issue is one of them. But also, again, looking at the fact that they feel as though these pocketbook issues have not necessarily um, gone in the favor of Americans, particularly Americans who are on the lower rung, particularly Americans who are already low income, where it's hitting them the hardest. But I don't think that we should use any of this to say that President Biden will not run again. Thus far, we have seen no indication of that from him. And we're going to hear from several Democratic or would-be Democratic candidates that they might do it, but they will only do it if this president decides that he's not going to run. I think that's the big asterisk that we have to have in this conversation. You know, Jeff, there is a lot of talk about Biden's age. I I personally don't think that age has anything to do with his low approval ratings or why people are hesitant about him. I do think it has to do with running the the country and the government. But, you know, as Amisha just said, Trump's not far behind age wise. Is that at all anything that anyone is talking about when it comes to what the Republican uh, candidate might look like? 
Not really. I mean, on the Republican side, people are not really concerned about about Trump's age. And even if he doesn't run, we'll we'll have a younger candidate. But yeah, age isn't really a factor here. I think what the factor is, is when people go to the gas station to fill up their cars, they know how much they're paying versus how much they were paying under Biden's predecessor. When they go to get groceries, they know what they know the difference between what they're paying now and what they were paying before. So I think the economic issues are impacting this far more than age. And besides, when you look at these two men, I mean, they're both definitely on in years, but there's a clear difference between how that age is affecting both. Trump is having a lot of the uh, cognitive issues that Biden has seemed to display. It's, it's, a, it's a totally different ballgame. So on the, on the conservative side, that the age isn't really much of a factor here. Hmm. Yeah, Amisha, what should the administration prioritize, you know, to get back on message or to get people interested in voting Democrat again? Because it just it feels like a sinking ship. It feels like maybe the agenda isn't getting across to the extent there is an agenda. It's a very um, I don't know. It's a very Ukraine focused agenda, not a kind of agenda, I think, that resonates with struggling working class people at home. So I disagree with that. I'm gonna give you a little bit of pushback there. We have a Democratic Party that is working to fight against a lot of the culture wars that have led to the overturning of pretty seismic um, policy in, in, in the American society. Look at what just happened with Roe v. Wade. We're seeing state after state also trying to topple and restrict women's reproductive rights. Mm-hmm. We're watching the advancement of anti-LGBT uh, legislation in various states across the country. We're watching limits on civil civil rights across this country. The Democratic Party has long been the party of those who have been seen as less than, of those who are from diverse groups, of those who are fighting every day for the right to humanity, for the right to live under the Constitution that is uh, that has provided those rights to so many people across this country, regardless of their race, their ethnicity, or their income level. And I think that the Democratic Party is showcasing that they are fighting for those. Um, we have seen very little action from the right when it comes to um, the, the reaction to a lot of our crises in the mass shootings that we've seen across this country that continue to perpetuate. We're seeing Democrats be very strong, particularly in some of the recent statements we've seen from Kamala Harris, as she is pushing towards more liability for gun manufacturers, as she is also trying to make Congress move on being able to um, to to in, in reinstitute the assault weapons ban. We're watching Democrats take the initiative when it comes to these things that are affecting Americans' everyday lives and the things that are ticker points for this country. We're watching them um, push environmental policy. We're watching them, and they are being, they, they are having a very hard time because of a lot of the, the conflict on the right and them not necessarily moving and not taking into account the things that matter to Americans the most. But back to your inflationary comments, I think that we also have to look at the fact that we're coming off of COVID-19. We're still in that session, but we're not in any way where we were two years ago. But with that being said, we still have supply chain issues. We still have a, a corporate structure in this country that is willing to push off costs on the backs of everyday Americans. And that corporate greed is what we're seeing in many cases. Yeah, Amisha, I completely agree with you that I think Democrats, when it comes to especially those more culture uh, sort of um, and and rights, I I do think Democrats are particularly strong in those areas. But I just wonder how much the average American cares about those things right now. I mean, I know plenty of people do care about all of those subjects. They definitely want those things. They want there to be some change. They want there to be equal rights and, and whatnot. But 
you know, a lot of people feel like that's kind of a luxury secondary thing for me to think about when I'm trying to put food on the table, when I'm trying to get a good job, I'm trying to get, you know, I, I, there's I'm being shut down by the government or I've got these, you know, various different factors against me just supporting my family. I think then people start to care less about uh, other people and, and their rights in that moment. They still care, but just it's not their top priority. So I want to ask you, Jeff, then. Um, who would be then, if Biden is not going to run, if if they do, if Democrats do say, okay, Biden, come on, step aside, and he steps aside, what's better for the republic, whoever the eventual Republican nominee is, what's better for them? Would it be to run against Biden or maybe like Kamala or Gavin Newsom? Well, what I've been saying is that if things continue the way they are, Republicans can run a platypus and still win in 2024. When it comes to Biden, I, I mean... He says he's going to run again. He has to say that. I don't believe for a second that he's going to seek re-election. He is way on up there in years. I think he wants to ride off into the sunset. And I think that that's exactly what the Democrats want as well. There was another poll that just came out, a New York and Siena poll that show that 64% of Democrat voters do not want Biden to run again. So I won't say it's a foregone conclusion that he's not going to run, but it's looking, it's looking that way. As far as the Democrats have on the bench, that's not looking too good either. Uh, Vice President Kamala Harris is not pulling well. She's pulling worse than Biden. She has not caught on with the American public. People don't like her. I think that their best bet, their best bet is probably California Governor Gavin Newsom. I think, oh. and I think he knows it. Yeah. This is why he's trying to get out there more. <laughs> I mean, you saw that ad that he did for Florida. You see, he's been trying to get himself out there. He's probably the one that has the most level of charisma that could possibly be, make him a contender. But other than than him, Democrats don't have much that's, of a shot. That's of wild to me. I like Newsom so much less than Joe Biden, and I don't like Joe Biden very much. So it's it's. Yeah. Uh, it's uh, it's uh, it's I still can't imagine. I know that, uh, you know, he's very old. A lot of people want him to not run again. It would be so historically unprecedented for someone to just to just cede power to well, give up the opportunity know. to be president again. We're, we're living in weird times. Everything that we well, think I isn't going to but... happen happens at this point. So we can't we can't rule anything out. But Amisha, just real quickly, who? OK, just, we have to play the game. If Biden's not going to we be, have to play the game, gonna, I agree with that. If he's not going to be the nominee. Who is the best shot uh, for Democrats? I Democrat. believe that Biden's going to be the nominee, but without Biden, Kamala Harris, heir apparent, she's the vice president. There's no way that it would, you know, sail past yeah. Kamala. I, I actually do okay. agree with that political. Please judgment. run Kamala. Please run her. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to run Biden. It's going to be Biden. And that's just it's going to be the boring thing. Probably it's usually the boring thing. We're just so used to it being the weird thing lately, even though it's usually the boring thing. But um, thank you both uh, so much for joining us. Uh, we really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. The NCAA is facing backlash after transgender female athlete Leah Thomas was nominated for the Woman of the Year Award. Now, the Daily Mail reports that women athletes, such as former tennis star Martina Navratilova and NCAA University of Kentucky swimmer Riley Gaines, are coming forward to condemn the University of Pennsylvania's selection of Thomas over many, quote, biological women athletes who competed last year. Navratilova tweeted, not enough biological women athletes, NCAA? What is wrong with you? Editor-in-chief at the post-millennial Libby Emmons join us now to weigh in. Libby, welcome to the show. Um, yeah, so what is the, I mean, what are people thinking about that? What do you think about this? What I think about this is pretty straightforward. I don't think it's reasonable or fair for women's college athletics to nominate a man 
to be woman of the year. It's absolutely absurd. Everyone who looks at this can see that it's absurd, not just the athletes, not just Navratilova, but while the championships were going on in Atlanta this year, parents were speaking out. They were doing it anonymously. Teammates were speaking out also anonymously. You had coaches at UPenn and people at the NCAA telling uh, competitors not to say anything about the unfairness here and to just go along with it. And I'm glad that now that we're in the summer season, athletes are finally able to speak out directly. I'm wondering yeah. if we're having to change the name of awards and instead have it be the biological woman of the year. You know, I mean, how um, it does seem. I guess seem, it could just be athlete of the year, but I mean. Well, but then you would, right. Well, right. And then that's that goes into the the you know the the i guess the claim that women are being erased that that the word is being erased that the category is being erased and then there would be something to that right if there was a if we changed it to just athlete right and and let's you know let's keep in mind why we have separate categories for men and women because in in athletics in in many most athletics um there's a you know wide divergence in athletic ability between men and women true that's true at every level that's certainly true at the level of elite competition this is you know this is done um so you can still have you have can have competitive swimming for women and and swimming for men and uh, you know now we're kind of eroding we're erasing the barriers between those categories and look there are people obviously people um who are losing out right livy Yeah, there's definitely people losing out. And I will say that I don't see any reason to change the language or our definitions just to suit men who would rather be viewed as women. I don't think that their feelings on this matter are particularly relevant. And we the reason too, as you said, that we have separate categories is so that there is fairness. And we've seen also that even if the trans athlete doesn't win the awards, doesn't take home the prizes like Laurel Hubbard didn't even place at the Olympics uh, coming up for the women's weightlifting team in New Zealand last year at the Tokyo Olympics. Laurel Hubbard didn't place, but Hubbard certainly took the places um, on that team of women who could have been competitive. So it's not even about winning or losing. It's about fairness for women's athletics. You know, and I, I have no problem at all recognizing Leah Thomas as a woman. If Leah Thomas wants to present herself as a woman, be recognized as a woman, uh, mm-hmm. check the boxes of woman, you know, when it when forms are filled out and whatnot, I have no problem with that. And I think many people are fine with it and say, okay, you know, I have no problem I, I, with who you want to be and how you want to present yourself and, and recognizing that. But there is an issue when it comes to the these sorts of, of things like athletics, um, there's some other there's other categories where people are starting to have some questions like about where do you put somebody who's trans who hasn't transitioned, um, who hasn't actually gone through the actual gender reassignment surgery when that, you know, where do you put them in prison? Right. Do they go to the men's prison? Do they go to the women's prison? Um, there's a lot of different categories where these things become questions. And obviously, I think the sports one is the big one right now in the in the spotlight. And there is, as you mentioned, Robbie, a a biological difference. You cannot change your chromosomes. You can't change Mm -hmm. your biology. You can present however you would like. The world can help recognize you so that you can live in in an an environment where you feel happy and free and supported. I have no problem with that, but you can't change your biology. And Leah Thomas, you know, we can't forget that Leah Thomas spent three years swimming and competing on the men's team as a male. And quite frankly, I believe even now, 
as a woman, Leah Thomas would still be allowed to compete on the men's side of swimming. I believe that men's sports in general are not actually men's sports. We have women's categories that are separated, that are meant for women to be able to compete against one another because women are different biologically. Um, but men's sports, if I'm not mistaken, anyone can actually compete. That's actually where anyone, including women, it's just that often women are not strong enough, fast enough you know, to, to compete alongside the men. But we've seen women uh, try to get into the NBA, for example, and some of the ones that were extraordinary were at times recruited in or, or tried out. We've seen this with football. We see this happen. So there is an open person's category for sports. It is called men's. Maybe they could change men's. I would, you know, maybe maybe men's could be changed mm -hmm. to, uh, you know, persons or all or just. Or you can have a, you know, you can have a separate. Um, I, I've spoken with um, an, an athlete, a skateboarder, uh, who who uh, dealt with a trans person uh, because of the advantage, uh, winning, you know, win again, winning in the women's category. And the skateboarder said, you know, there could be actually in that sport already, there are enough individuals who are trans where you could have a separate trans category. Maybe that's the way to do it. Um, uh, it, it we I can don't be, know about that. I mean, I just, it's like, because that gets really, really complicated. And I just feel like, wow. you know, because then what, you're going to have trans women and trans men competing in the same category, then you end up with the same sort of issues. Well, so, no, I mean, I, I think, think well, them like it would be substantially more fair. We also have a female swimmer who is trans who competes on the women's team for the specific reason that there is more competition available for that swimmer on the women's uh, women's athletics mm. in college. Otherwise, uh, I believe Isaac Hennig, I think, is the name. Um, I don't have it at the tip of my fingertips here, but I believe that's right, competes on the on the women's team. And you're, well, saying, and, and you're saying that this is a biological male who's transitioned to female or fem no, biological female? No, this is female? a female who has had a voluntary double mastectomy who is competing. Who is undergoing trans... Okay. Who believe, yeah, competes on the women's team, so is that... friends with Thomas. Yeah. And also we have seen the skateboarding competitions. There was recently a 29-year-old male skateboarder who competed against 13-year-old women skateboarders and took home the prizes. We've seen it in cycling, Emily Bridges, um, Veronica Ivy. We've seen these people take home the awards in women's competition and it doesn't seem reasonable. Also, if you look at the, you, you mentioned prisons, there was a biological male who was housed in the Edna Mann Correctional Facility in New Jersey, impregnated two women despite being on Estrogen does not have an interest in having, um, as you know, so-called bottom surgery, and was recently transferred out to a youth correctional facility because the crimes that this individual committed mm. happened while they were underage. So we oh, are I seeing, see. you know, shocking unfairness across the board. There have been rapes in women's prisons in California, I believe, as well as Washington State. In California, in the women's prisons, they now distribute condoms because mm. um, this is what's going on. Sex is not allowed in the prison, but it's happening anyway. Well, We've seen in Nova Scotia pregnancies. We've seen in Australia. We've seen this all over the place. But I, think I can at least understand. That say that men aren't women and allow women to have their own spaces and sure. legal designations. Sure. No, absolutely. I can at least understand the, ration the rationale being that putting a trans... Um, a trans 
woman in with the men's prison could put them at serious risk of being sexually assaulted? I mean, there, obviously there's going to be risks of sexual violence and other things either way. You probably, again, this is probably a clear case where you need special accommodations for these people. Perhaps they don't fit into either population, so it's a little, it's a little bit thorny. But I, I can understand why they would not, um, why there'd be issues in, in both ways. But, you know, you said something, Libby, before we actually started rolling the cameras today, that, you know, this is an issue that, this is like an 80-20 issue. This is something most people think that it is not fair for uh, for 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 trans people uh, who had who have who have physical advantages given the gender which of their birth that it's not fair for them to compete against um, other people or people in the category that they've 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 joined yeah but, if you've you know, gone that's through something puberty. conservatives feel and right. that's something many many liberals feel as well it's an 80 20 yeah. issue it's a small number of people uh, who re who really think this is a good idea? But apparently, a small number of people that includes those who give out awards, I guess, at the NCAA. Yeah, and those in the Biden administration who don't seem to think that Title IX provisions should protect women's athletics anymore. I think part of the reason that it's um, such a such a easily identifiable issue for that eighty percent is because it's so visual. When you look at Leah Thomas up on the podium next to the women competitors, it's just very obvious that Thomas has physical advantages that these women do not have. And that is the case when we look at a number of these instances. Veronica Ivy, the cyclist, for example, stands head and shoulders ahead of, over mm -hmm. taller than the competition. Um, we just see it. So I think that that's a big part of the reason why right. this is a, yeah. a clear cut issue for people. Yeah, hormone therapy doesn't change your, you know, it doesn't reverse your puberty that you went through. So if you grew to 6'1", 6'2", 6'3", and you got, you know, the size of a man, I mean, that, unfortunately, hormones cannot reverse that. And that, and so there's this argument that, well, but you're taking hormones, and so therefore you're evening out, and it just doesn't quite work that way. The science isn't there. Maybe at some point it would get there, but it's not there today. And I think then, you know, there's this obvious discrepancy and people are looking at this, even if they're very supportive of trans rights and but say that this is just, you know, one step a bit too far. But I think there's another issue that we're going to be talking about here in relation to this, Robbie. Uh, no, I thought we were just going to I was gonna, we were just going to leave it there. I, so this other thing oh, really? I actually want to look into more because I have some I oh, okay. I want to talk okay. about that at a different time. Okay. Um, so we'll probably just wrap that now. bathroom thing. Yeah. Yeah. Hang on one second. We're going to we're going to put um, uh, the guest up and then you'll just thank her and we'll go. Yep. We'll conclude the block. Here we go. Anytime. Libby Emmons, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Federal prosecutors said Monday they will not pursue charges against the production crew of The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, nine of whom were arrested last month and charged with misdemeanor unlawful entry at the U.S. Capitol. In a statement, the U.S. Attorney's Office for D.C. said the nine members of the show had been invited by congressional staffers into the House office building and that an escort left them unattended. Quote, we do not believe it is probable that the office would be able to obtain it and sustain convictions on these charges. 
So Tucker Carlson discussed the dismissal of charges on Fox. Let's watch. These insurrectionists went to the January 6th committee hearing. They were prohibited from being there because they had already been denied special press credentials. Of course, they're not media. They're not entertainers, Tucker. They are Democrat Party activists. That's correct. They are no different than any of the people who were there on January 6th. I mean, Stephen Colbert is a Democrat Party loyalist. He spends his entire show beating up on Trump and Republicans. So they were there as activists. So they they could have actually shut down this committee. Um, and so think about that. Think of the hort. Think of Liz Cheney's face. If the puppet dog guy um, caused her committee to pause. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Look, I, it sounds, it does not sound, they're trying to, you know, liken it to January 6th. I guess fair enough. And it was wrong, obviously, for them to you know, be in the wrong place or whatever, but it doesn't really sound like a very similar situation, right? They were they were let in, I guess, by some member of Congress, and then you're supposed to be supervised at all times by that person, and I guess they weren't. It doesn't sound to me like they did anything remotely serious enough to be charged with, you know, an actual crime. Um, I mean, they shouldn't have done that, and and I guess given right, given how much grandstanding and standing on ceremony that liberals are doing about, you know, what happened to the Capitol and people going into the Capitol on January 6th without permission. I guess fair enough. But it just it just does actually doesn't sound that similar to me. Right. I don't know. What do you think? Well, I, I think people are latching on to it. It feels hypocritical, right, yeah. to say, well, so when liberals do it or people that are representing a liberal leaning show, then it's fine. But then when right. these other people who were just walking into the building and they were just kind of looking around and gawking. And I mean, <laughs> if, right. if a tour guide would have walked up to some of these people and said, would you like a tour? A bunch of them would have said, sure, actually, I would love a tour. So I, I think that then people are looking at this and saying, why is there this hypocrisy? But in reality, I do have to say, though, I do believe that many people have been charged with crimes from January 6th that should not be. A lot of the people that are being even convicted, their sentences, I think, are uh, absolutely, you know, way too harsh. People are being held for, uh, you know, for right. however long right now at this point without going through actual trials and whatnot. And so, um, though I, I do agree that there is some wrong happening when it comes to January 6th, I will say that of the hundreds of people that were in the Capitol building, they did not charge the vast majority of them. So right. it would be one thing, I would say, if they went after all the people. I think they estimated Literally everyone who people. was in there, yeah. Right, right. I think they estimated 800 people ended up in the Capitol building. Um, and I, I believe of the 800, 200 were charged. That is, and that's because they were trying to get certain groups, certain people, for certain things. But, you know, some of right. those certain things, I would argue it's, you know, why is the government going after somebody who's, you know, gawking around and not really doing any, not doing anything damaging? And so there's definitely questions about that. And I'm not dismissing that. I do think that there is some something that needs to be looked into that. But most of the people were not charged just for entering the Capitol. Most yeah, people were uh, let go. Right. I feel that way, too. And, you know, even people who are who are pretty guilty and did bad stuff, you know, I, do they need to spend, you know, months and months in solitary confinement or whatever the ho horrible conditions exactly, were, which is just right. which is just common, really, for all crimes. We're too, you know, we're too much of a prison based society. We're too militant about charging things just in general, not even for this specifically. So I would say that about, you know, any number of people facing you know, very serious or 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 really uh, awful uh, uh, prison terms. But, yeah, no member of, you know, the Colbert team 
nobody smashed a window or urinated on somebody's rug or you know did any of that. That stuff is you know that's a, that's a more serious. Yeah, not saying that means jail for the rest of your life or solitary confinement, but yeah, you should if you if you smashed windows, if you you know you 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 fought with the police, you you know took a I don't know a, a knocked things over and or more than knocked things over, or urinated or defecated, then yeah, you're probably going to get charged with something, and I, I I'm not I'm not going to lose much sleep over over being charged for that, and nobody. Yeah, it's just it's what not level an equivalent thing. And what length, right? Like yeah. what what level of charges are they getting for doing certain things? What length of time are they being sentenced with? That right. is something that I think people should be paying more attention to and spending more time on because there are some discrepancies there. And when you look at uh, and it's the reason why there's discrepancies is because they're labeling it as an insurrection. They're saying, no, but this was worse. What you did was worse than the people that did things, let's say, during the uh, the protests of 2020, the BLM protests, where there were some rioters that then went around and did very similar mm -hmm. things, if not worse in some cases. What sentences did those people get in comparison to the people that went into the, to the Capitol building on January 6th? And there was this attitude in the country, or at least amongst some, that, well, it's different because the these people had a different intention. I don't agree with the that the vast majority had that intention at all. Uh, so, right. you, you know, that's where so the, so that I think needs to be looked into more. And of course, mainstream liberal media is not going to look at that at all. Right. I think I do think that uh, Fox News outlets, conservative outlets, are maybe, uh, of course, they're 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 capitalizing on this on on the Colbert people being left let go and they're using that as a moment to shine the light on the hypocrisy but I do think they could spend more time shining the light on what kind of charges were these people given yeah. uh, charged with and what kinds of punishments are they getting what kind of conditions are they currently being held in? and I know some of them are talking about that but certainly we need to be holding our government it accountable. Just wasn't, they wanted to make it sound like it was uh, they being, you know, the committee, the prosecutors, the, the mainstream media, the liberals, they wanted to make it sound like it was organized because it was organized. Right, then, right. well, who organized it? Is it Trump right. people? Can we connect it to Trump? And it was, you know, I, I was there. I covered it in person. I, you know, I watched them go in again. I think it was a, a ho absolutely horrible thing that happened. Um, very akin to a lot. Of, I also covered a lot of the violence, you know, during the uh, post George Floyd um, riots, that was bad. This was also very bad. This was clearly not organized. It was like the furthest thing from organized I've ever witnessed. It was absolutely a spontaneous mob kind of riot, you know, over the, mm -hmm. like the crowd went wild, um, like a concert or something. I mean, very much like a concert type thing because Donald Trump, the performer, had just performed for them. And I, again, I think it's fine to hold him, you know, morally responsible for that, but it was not, it was not planned. They did it. And uh, there's an appropriate number of consequences. It, it, you know, it's different from other things in that it happened to a very prominent government building that has uh, tremendous you know, symbolism for the country. Um, so it, it has significance in, in that regard. But it just wasn't you couldn't convince me based on what I saw and based on what we've heard that it was organized. It was people. It got out of hand. They did some bad things and they should be you know, held accountable to the appropriate degree, um, as should people yeah. who burned cities and did other things so that's right just and that's been my big be. issue with it is that it's held for some reason at a higher level yeah. than somebody's business that they built for their entire life they spend their all their money and all their blood sweat and tears building a business it gets burnt down looted and you know it's like oh, okay well sorry that happened and then the government building uh yeah. you know gets swarmed and then they act like it's something completely different i would like to see the people that work inside that building uh, have a little bit more respect for the building and for it, what it represents. And I don't feel like they do. So, you know, I, I, 
I think they're point. hypocritical on that front. That's a good point. Of your retirement, are yeah, they true? I don't know where the word retirement came in. <laughs> it was kind of a little bit. Not mine. <laughs> no, it, I was the, the reporter. You're not going to retire, are you? Uh, no, no, I'm not going to retire. I may step down from my current position at some time. And one of the reporters had asked me, and the, the question originated was if Donald Trump is the next president, would you still work for him in your capacity? And I said a very innocent but true thing. I said, whether it's Donald Trump or it's Joe Biden's second term, I don't intend to be in my current position in January of 2025. What happens between now and then, I have not decided. But the one thing I do know is that I have other things that I want to do in a professional way, uh, that I want to have the capability while I still have the energy and the passion to do them. So I picked, I don't want to go beyond January 2025. When I step down from this position, I have not decided that yet. So for the Twitterati. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was Dr. Fauci responding to the reporting from yesterday. We discussed on the show that he was going to retire. And so he was giving an important clarification there that, yes, he, he does intend to no longer be uh, a director of the National Institute for Allergies and Infectious Diseases. Uh, come 2025, regardless of whether Biden or Trump are president, but he's not retiring. So I take that to mean, Kim, I don't know what you thought, that he's leaving the door open for to be a contributor to a TV network like CNN or MSNBC, or do a <laughs> well, book. Sanjay Krupta better watch out, right? You know, right. That's right. He's yeah. coming for you, Sanjay. <laughs> Or do a, I, you know, do a Netflix show? I don't know. Do you take up, oh, uh, take up uh, I don't know, competitive something or other? No, he, he's, he intends to remain, and I, I suspect is seeing the opportunity to become a bigger, even bigger media figure than he is currently, you know, right now being just a media figure, a representative uh, for, the, for the public health bureaucracy on COVID specifically. I, I think he, he's had a, a taste of star power and, uh, you know, yeah. what could await him if he fully commits himself to that cause. Yeah, why why fade off into the sunset when your star is shining bright right now, right? I mean, I think that's what he's yeah. kind of looking at because amongst Democrats, he he is still very popular, um, and he's probably looking at lawmakers and thinking, well, you know, these guys are getting old too, and they're still around, and so why yeah. not hang around with my friends, you know, that like me and I like them. But um, so he's trying to he's trying to say. Interest. I mean, look, again, he is 81 years old at the moment. So by 2025 rolls around, you know, he's going to be mid 80s. He's, or, he's early 80s right now. He'd be mid 80s. A lot of people think that that already just warrants retirement. Let, you know, let somebody else who's been building their career for decades. I get it. Fauci's got a lot of energy. He still seems like he's with it and sharp. I don't I don't um, discount that. I don't think that there's anything wrong with his with his you know, mind or ability to do the job. It's just that at some point you have to step aside and allow the next generation to come in and actually see some rewards for the work they too have put mm -hmm. in for their careers. And that is what the elder generation should do, right? Step aside and let the next generation they come in. And he's just not to do let it. them. They refuse <laughs> to do it. The, that group, the boomer group, or I don't know, he might even be older than the, the boomers because boomers right now, I feel like at the top age are like 75 years old, right? So what are you if you're, yeah, <laughs> he might little, be at the end of I don't know, when, the when tail end of the greatest the generation. When do we start the baby boom counting that, like 1950s? I, I think, 
No, I think the boomers started right after World War II. So it would be like 46, 47 is when they were born. So those guys right now are like 75 years old. So I don't even know what generation Fauci and Biden and all those guys are in. But he's a silent, they're silent generation. Right, right, right. Because Biden is technically not a boomer, right? He's technically silent generation. Yeah, so I mean, step us. I mean, my goodness, you know, we're gonna, we we complain about boomers running the government. These guys haven't even let the boomers take over yet. <laughs> the boomers would be the, the young guys. Well, I, I guess they the have because be wasn't well, wasn't um, so the people prior to Biden wasn't uh, wasn't no. I guess so. There's been no boomer president. Is that I'm so bad at this kind of math uh, on the spot. So Obama would be post is right. He's younger, so he's post boomer. Sure Bush. I think I think W is a, a boomer. Gen, they're Gen um, X. We've been governed by I, Gen I X from Obama's like Clinton a, to. No, I don't. No, 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 no. Clinton's a boomer and. Clinton's a boomer, uh, right? Yeah, Clinton's a boomer, and so is Bush, and so is Obama. Yeah. I believe that Obama. It depends on his age, but the the last boomers right now are around sixty five. Like no, they're like early sixties. I think fifty eight. Right, they were born in like nineteen sixty five. They're born in, uh, yeah, when you get later, right? Yeah, they yeah. were born in, yeah. that's like the last, the tail end. So I do think that most of the presidents have been, um, the, the last ones right. have been okay, boomers. Okay, so we've had, we've had boomers for a couple yeah. couple cycles, yeah. and then we went back. Yeah, but the rest of, but, but all these other, I mean, look, at some point, you, there is, there does have to be something to be said for step aside, let someone else who's worked their careers who are probably now retired because Fauci didn't, he outlived them, you know, he outlasted them <laughs> in his position, that the younger generation waiting for him to retire, waiting to take over, ended up retiring before Fauci even did. But, you know, I mean, this is kind of an interesting way for him to frame it because many of us were coming after him saying, oh, really? So you just don't want, because his statement or what he alluded to when he said that he was retiring, if Trump were to get into office, was that he didn't want to end up potentially, or, or were we just guessing that? Was it an actual statement? Because I'm trying to remember, because Batya- I think and maybe the were... media, they might, maybe the media, maybe actually maybe that we count as the media this time. We, maybe we made too much of it or we read too much into it that he didn't want to work for Trump again when he was really just saying- Well, because he didn't want to have to deal with the consequences yeah. of the Republicans coming in and then- I think then, he you did know, say how... something to that effect. No, he absolutely did say something along the lines of, you know, maybe if I'm out, sooner rather than later, there'd be less interest in having me testify. I yeah, didn't use those that, exact words. Right. He said that's something, right. along, those something along those lines. And so it led us all to say, oh, so you're just worrying about yourself and right. your career, and your reputation. And that no, really he just why- wants to make a few, he wants to make a few million as a, as a media star uh, before, you know, while he's still with it enough uh, to do that, right? I mean, you he know, there's be a big difference between now. 85 and 89 for some people, so. <laughs> I don't know. I think he just really enjoys his job. Um, and I think there's a lot of people around him who, who, who prop him up, especially now and make him, you know, he's a big celebrity at this point. So I think he's really enjoying it. This is like high time for him and he doesn't want to let it go. And so he's holding on until he says 2025. I mean, I think he should have retired a while ago, but he's choosing not to. I think Democrats are doing themselves a disservice by not encouraging him to retire and to say, look, we need somebody else. This is, you know, we've got a lot of, we're, we're losing support. People are not thrilled with a pandemic response. He's the face of pandemic restrictions. He's the face of lockdowns and of uh, of, of first uh, denying that masks were important, then requiring cloth masks for two years. And now that actually we come to believe that 
those masks are not doing really anything and you need the you need the better mask if you're to even have a chance of really protecting yourself. Yeah, I, I personally don't think he lied the first time. I know people always dispute that and they say, well, you know, he lied because he said he was trying to. And then he and then later he says, oh, well, I was just telling a noble lie because of the uh, I, I wanted to I wanted to save supplies. I've never actually believed that. I actually th think that he was telling what he really believed the first time around. Mm -hmm. But then when sentiments shifted and people were wanting something at all. They were grasping for something to help he, he, the pandemic. He, he preferred then to I sound villainous modified. rather than wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I think he thought in his that mind that if he just came out and said, well, I just said that, you're right, they do, you know, everybody do this. It's all part this. of the plan. But I, you know, I, I only said that because X, Y, Z, and but really, when you look back at all the previous statements that were made well before the pandemic, most of the experts were in agreement thinking certain things, you know, along those lines. I know we can't really talk as freely as we'd like. So having right. to kind of couch our statements a bit. But um, I do think that experts were in agreement qu quite a bit when it came to that subject. And then the attitude shifted, I think, largely because the people wanted something. And so they were trying to help calm people's fears and help people, you know, just Okay, we're doing something. Here's the right. something. Um, and then it and became then a tribal signifier. Then it became, okay, right. you're wearing your mask. That's how I know you're a Democrat. Thing, right. That's how I know you don't like Donald Trump, et cetera, and right. uh, endures. And now we're back day. into where the experts are saying, well, okay, yeah, they do a little. <laughs> it's not as great. you know. So now we're kind of back to square one with it. Yeah. So, But Fauci is flip-flop on so many things. He said so many things um, back and forth without just saying, look, we don't know. This is this is how science works. We're unsure. We're just throwing everything out the wall. We're doing what we can, and we'll keep you posted. You know, whenever we find something new, yeah. we'll we'll keep you updated on that. And that is not the way it's been. And so Fauci, for many of us, is just the face of. And that's without even getting into any of the you know the gain of function stuff. The fact that he's a a the, one of the yeah, foremost public advocates of this kind of research that a lot of people think might have been responsible for the situation we find ourselves in. So I mean, at this point, too, they but. should ask, what has he been right about? Like, just right. give me one thing. Like, what was the one thing that, okay, Fauci did a Representation for Italian-Americans like myself. <sighs> <laughs> I mean, I guess. That's uh, the, the one thing he did. All right, all well, right. We'll, uh, we'll look forward uh, to his next career pivot whenever that is uh, but it's cool to uh, break a little bit of news here that was footage from a hill event uh, that, that just happened so you're seeing that here first well we have some breaking news the charges for murder against uh, jose alba that's the bodega worker uh, who stabbed a man in what looked very clearly like self-defense while he was being attacked at his uh, bodega so those charges are going to be dropped so Alba is a free man after this, which is good news. Obviously, so many people who saw that footage uh, from the from the camera on the bodega, you know, saw what very clearly looked like a aggression from uh, the person who was, he was having the altercation with, who came back behind the counter, um, who, who shoved him against a wall. This was a, an intimidating person, and Alba is an older man, and, uh, and, and Alba did, did stab him, and then that guy, uh, that person, uh, Simon, I believe was his name, last yeah, name? Yeah, Austin, Austin Simon. Austin Simon, and he, and he did yeah. die, um, which is uh, tragic, but you know he really initiated that situation. He did not give Alba a lot of any opportunity or room 
to to de-escalate uh, the fight. So that's you know that's what happened. And uh, yeah. I, I everybody pretty much everybody was outraged that uh, and he did have to spend Alba had to spend some time in Rikers. He had a very high. A bail amount set, but uh, now is going to be freed. So good. I say good. Yeah. What do you say, Kim? Yeah, I mean, uh, it was pretty obvious from the footage that he was operating in self-defense. I mean, there was, you know, Austin Simon went around and uh, around the counter and shoved him and was getting in his face. And I do think that Jose Alba had every reason to believe that he was in danger, yeah. not knowing what this person would do to him. And I think anybody in that situation would be frightened. Anybody in that situation would think, I don't know, is this person going to pull a weapon out? Are they going to kill me? You know, what what is going to happen here? And of course, nobody knows they're about to be murdered before they're about to be murdered. So Jose Alba would not have known whether or not Austin Simon was capable of something such as really, truly physically harming him. And on the flip side, you know, obviously Austin Simon did not think when he was going around that counter to intimidate Jose Alba into giving him a bag of chips. Um, right. I, I doubt he really thought that through and realized that his life was also being put on the line at that moment. So, so and, um, the mem- and the memo, just by the way, the memo from the prosecutor basically says exactly that. So the prosecutor, Alan Bragg, the memo says that, yeah, one potential defense is that Alba reasonably believed Simon was about to use deadly force. And the law provides that a person may themselves use deadly force to defend oneself if the person reasonably believes that another person is about to use or is using um, deadly yeah. force, that Simon's conduct in entering the mall, the private area, throwing Alba against the wall to a place he could not escape, grabbing him by the collar could inspire deep fear in an older and shorter man as to what, what might be in store next. So basically the prosecutor saying exactly, you know, what we're saying. Yeah, it's uh, it was a reasonable yeah. belief. Right. How, how would you know if somebody's attacking yeah. you and, 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 you know, it's Jose Alba didn't provoke it. No. He wasn't getting in this guy's face, and it wasn't, you know, just your average street fight type thing. I mean, this there's was... No, there's no obligation to get beaten up in society. Like if right. somebody is attacking right. you, you should... And, and, and maybe there are some blue municipalities or states where it's actually like even less clear whether you have the right to defend yourselves. I mean, the laws do vary from state to state, you know, whether you have to you can stand your ground or what, whether you have a duty to try to retreat, that kind of thing. But he had nowhere to retreat to. He was closed in a little, you know, in a little corner in this, you know, it's behind the corner in one of those New York bodegas. So uh, he just acted very reasonably the way anyone who did not want to become the victim of violence would act. And we don't, there's, yeah. no, there's no obligation to become a victim of violence, or at least there ought not to be. I think this puts um, law enforcement in a difficult position where I'd say, you know, like uh, law- lawyers, the DA, I think it puts them in a difficult situation because we are seeing a rise in crime all around the country, right? Especially in a lot of these larger cities where there's more disparities between the rich and the poor. And in this particular instance, you know, Austin Simon was, is his girlfriend wanted a bag of chips for her 10 year old daughter. Um, She didn't have the money. She then got her boyfriend to come and take care of the situation. He went in there to try to get the bag of chips for the daughter. Um, And the whole thing to me is just extremely sad. I mean, I just look at that and I think we have rising inflation in this country. People cannot afford when they're living paycheck to paycheck. They cannot afford the basics that just or even just the little luxuries in life, like a bag of chips. You know, they no longer can do that because the rising gas rates and just inflation for things that you really should be eating, like fruits and vegetable meats. You know, meats are uh, extraordinarily uh, high right now. So. Very sad situation that, you know, and I know that this guy had a criminal record. People are going to point to that and say, well, you know, but look, at the end of the day, people are strapped. 
they're feeling pressured. They also don't want to disappoint themselves or their children or their spouses or whoever it is. And the whole thing to me is just extremely sad. So what's going to happen now is we're seeing this rise in crime. And as we we always see this, whenever the economy is not doing well, when people don't have much money, there's a rise in crime. When that crime goes up, uh, you know, and now we're seeing this. So what is going to happen? Is this going to give the green light to people that then, you know, they're worried, somebody comes in and maybe that person is is um, acting aggressively I, I think that I think the concern probably amongst mm-hmm. law enforcement is will this give people the green light to just uh, stab and shoot whoever anybody that they're afraid of? Well, and look, then are we going to see a rise in this? These people, these store owners, uh, by the way, who are by the way disproportionately immigrants, um, you know, come from marginalized, so-called marginalized groups that that the liberals, progressives say we have to do more to help, and then. Well, okay, they're not allowed. Should they, shouldn't they be able to defend themselves? I, I, I might go the other way. If if a you know would be a, a robber or and some of these are you know violent robberies. Somebody's going to point a gun at someone or a knife at someone and steal their stuff from their store. Maybe they think twice because the last guy who did it, uh, who shoved an old man, got stabbed. I'm that would not you know play stupid games, win stupid prizes. Like you can't you can't treat people like this. And people have the right to defend themselves and their property. They sh- I I believe I, that. I do believe. No, I, it's I agree really getting you. out of hand. I agree. I just worry yeah. with with rising poverty, there's going to be rising crime and I and people are going to lash out. And I, I, I just I, I hope that they don't do it in this way where they go and attack somebody and then end up dead. That's yeah. just my fear is that people shouldn't die for being poor. And, and people and I, right, and I understand people are poor and, and people are very desperate and it's hard times for many. But you can't that just. There's no sanction to use violence against other people because he, you know, he didn't go in there and swipe the bag of chips and leave. Right. He went right. behind the counter. To, yeah. yeah. So it's just uh, I just lose a lot of, of sympathy. One other uh, element to this story we wanted to touch on before we, we go. Uh, so a lot of people are pointing out a certain uh, what seemed like a hypocrisy for GoFundMe because they did allow a page uh, a fundraiser for uh, Tekel Sunberg, who uh, we discussed this this story, I think yesterday, was it yesterday? The days all run together. Very recently, yeah, yesterday. Uh, so this was the uh, the person who, so he was killed by the police. He was having a kind of violent medical episode and, and then and there's been some protesting on his behalf. Now, during his medical episode, he had a gun and he shot up his neighbor's home and she had young kids and you've seen her apartment, it's riddled with bullets. And then she had a com- confrontation with the BLM people saying, like, you're complaining about what was done here, but he, you know, was shooting wildly into my apartment. Um, so GoFundMe allowed uh, some fundraising for him, but took down a page for fundraising for uh, Ho- for Jose Alba. It looked hypocritical to me, but I looked a little bit more closely at the policies, and I, you know, you could still say it's hypocritical, but what they're going to say is that GoFundMe has a policy. You can fundraise for uh, funeral expenses, which would what Sunberg's uh, expenses were for. You're not, according to, to GoFundMe's policies, you can't fundraise for defense of what is being charged as a violent crime. So that, so it, it te- technically not the apples to apples comparison is what they would say. Now, is well, that a little, you know, I don't if know. They, well, you know, if they keep it consistent and if they really truly say, look, yeah. we just have a policy that you can't fundraise for legal for legal fees. 
yeah. but that you can fundraise for uh, funeral expenses or support for family, no matter who the victim is, whether they be the perpetrator or whether they be the victim, um, no matter who the person is that needs legal defense, whether they be in the right or the wrong. I mean, if they're going to stay consistent, then I can get on board with that. What I don't like is when companies are inconsistent and then they, they say, well, you know, we're going to allow you to fundraise, but only for the causes that we like, only for the people that we then say, well, they're in the right. And so it's okay for them to fundraise for legal defense, but not you because I don't agree with you for X, Y, Z reason, right? That's where it gets yeah. really murky and people start to have a real problem with it. But if that's their, if that's their policy, I suppose that's their policy. Yeah, no, 100%. All right, well, that's it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, while mainstream media is hyper-focused on the January 6th hearings on Capitol Hill, Union Railroad worker Charles Stallworth it will be here to discuss what blue-collar workers actually care about. So be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss an episode. And be sure to check us out on podcasts, wherever you download them. You can take us on the go. Thank you guys so much for watching. Thanks for, it was fun being here all day, all morning. It was nice to to chat with you, Robbie, all day. Love seeing you all um, day, Kim. Thank you so much for waking (laughs) up early for us. We do always appreciate it. We know the viewers do as well. All right, everybody. See you next time. Bye. Bye.